You know, I don't have a lengthy bio um, that I could really do, but I was thinking as we were talking earlier that uh, when we, when I first came to Christ St. Paul's, we were a part of what's known as the Beaufort Deanery, which is all the way down to Beaufort and Bluffton and uh, all of that sort of stuff down there. And you were serving at St. Helena's, and so we were in the same deanery, and that's a long time ago. It was. You were a lot older back then. Yeah, (laughs) I was a lot younger back then. It was a long time ago. Um, Since then, he went to Conway and served at St. Paul's and did an amazing and outstanding job there. Um, And because we are kind of uh, legally uh, 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 up-to-date congregation, so we know if I tell them that Kay Hearn was a parishioner of yours, they will, kn- they will know who she I'm referring to. love me. Let me tell <laughs> They will know that, uh, what that's all about. So they will, uh, they're not uh, ignorant of that fact as well. Um, but he's been, how long have you been at St. Paul Somerville now? 17, uh, four and a half years. Four and a half years up at St. Paul Somerville. Um, and so I'm thrilled to get Tripp here with us and to continue our study. Um, I don't know about you all, but I feel like I've, I've teased a bunch, like whose idea was this to do spiritual warfare during Lent? Because man alive, has it been uh, a lot of spiritual warfare in a lot of places in, in my life, and I think perhaps in all of our lives. There, yeah, and so, uh, but what better preparation to um, face that spiritual warfare than uh, to be prepared rather than just to have it hit us and not be prepared. Amen. So let's pray for Trip. Father, I pray for your uh, anointing of your Holy Spirit on Trip that you might speak a powerful word to us through him, that uh, we might be blessed. It would be to your honor and glory, and that uh, he would know a job well done. And so I just thank you for Trip, for friendship, for shared ministry, and for his opportunity to be with us tonight, and ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Thank We're you, yours. Okay. So I just went to the bathroom and um, I saw the advertisement for tonight above the, the stall there, and it said, Father Trip Jeffords, the father of lies. <laughs> and I'm like, I mean, what an introduction for tonight. I mean, I'm like, but I had forgotten that several weeks ago that uh, I had drifted off in another direction, and that was my original title. But tonight we have the accuser versus the advocate, the prosecutor versus the defense attorney. And so we're going to do a few things tonight. Um, we're going to meet the accuser, um, and then we're going to greet the accuser in a courtroom scene. Okay, so think of a courtroom scene. You hear the language, accuser, advocate, prosecutor, uh, defense attorney. Uh, and then we're going to find out ways that we can defeat the accuser. So meet the accuser, defeat the, uh, greet the accuser, and defeat the accuser. And thank you, Craig, for having me tonight. Thank you all for your wonderful food and hospitality. It was really great. And I appreciate you all having me because I've never been here before. So I love your church space, and, uh, and thank you. So without further delay, uh, let's attack this co- topic of spiritual warfare. And I want to introduce to you a struggle that is my war, and it's my struggle, and I think it's probably your war and your struggle. So let us pray. Thank you, Jesus, for dying for us. The Bible says that your blood speaks a better word. You've adopted us as sons and daughters of God once again. And we are co-heirs with you in Christ with all your riches. So as a child of God, dear Lord, help us to remember that we are strong, that we are holy, that we are redeemed, that the enemy, the accuser, the prosecutor of the saints no longer has rights to us. And we claim that tonight in Jesus' name. We pray, dear Lord that uh, Jesus Christ would fill us, overshadow us with his righteousness. He is our mediator, he is our advocate, he is our defense attorney, 
And in the powerful name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. So we'll meet, greet, and defeat. Those three things. So let's meet the accuser. Uh, the word Satan means prosecutor, literally. So we've got a prosecuting attorney, and think of a courtroom session. And Satan wants to build a case against you. That's one of his major priorities, to build a case against you. So first of all, I want to establish a fact about human nature tonight. And the fact is that we are all deeply insecure creatures. Have you ever had one of those dreams where you are in high school and you are naked? <laughs> and you're in the hallway and nobody's there so you open a locker and, and you hide your shame as well as you can. But you know class, the bell's about to ring, class is going to be let out and your shame is going to be on view for everybody to see. They will all know you. Or if you had this other dream, and I still have this one today, that you're in college, and you're at the end of your college career, you've got to take exams one more time, but there's this class that you signed up for, but you f forgot to attend the entire semester. I don't know if you've had that one, but it haunts me, baby, it does. And, and I'm like in the middle of this, and I'm like, certainly I can cram for the exam. But then I think, no, this is like physics 201. You can't cram for physics. I realize in the midst of that that I am toast and I'm not going to graduate. And it's such a vivid dream to me, even at, at 53 years of age. I kind of jokingly told my wife the other day, I'm going to take out all my diplomas, my master's degree, my undergraduate, all that kind of stuff, even my ordination stuff, and I'm going to paste them above our bed frame so that when I wake up from one of these vivid dreams, I can remind myself that I did graduate, that I am somebody, and that I'm not a total fraud. These dreams, they're dreams of insecurity, aren't they? They're dreams of inadequacy. They're dreams that reveal that deep truth that there is something within us that tells us that if people saw me naked, if they saw all my insecurities, if they saw all my sin and knew me well, they would reject me. They would reject me. We call it, psychologists call it the imposter syndrome. It's actually a thing. They got books written on the imposter syndrome. And the imposter syndrome is that humans have this deep-seated feeling that somewhere, no matter what we're doing, whether we're a doctor, a teacher, a lawyer, a priest, that somebody's going to find us out and they're going to reveal that we are imposters, that we don't deserve to be in our vocation. Now, typically... Um, you know, that leads us back to Adam and Eve, that we are all sons of Adam and we're daughters of Eve. We are all still naked and afraid in the world, ashamed of our sin, full of guilt, full of the feeling of unworthiness. And there are typically two reasons, two remedies that I go through when uh, I try and combat this feeling of inadequacy. The first thing I, I do is what Paul tells us not to do. Romans 11.21, Paul commands us, do not be puffed up with pride. That's my go-to. Do not be puffed up with pride. Sometimes we seek to overcome our insecurities by stoking our ego. Stoking our ego. Psychologists tell us all the time that the main problem with you as a human being is that you got low self-esteem, right? It's your low self-esteem. Not a good biblical analysis, but that's what psychologists say. Psychologists will tell you that you just need to surround yourself by a lot of people who think that you're great. 
You need to surround yourself by people who will tell you what a wonderful person Craig is. You need to have a bubble of positivity around you so that you'll be protected from the harmful rays of negativism. Sort of like this guy. Remember him from the old Saturday Night Live skit? Uh, you may not be old enough, but there's this guy named Stuart Smalley. He created this character named Jack Handy. And he would do this skit, and you could tell that he's terribly insecure, right? He, said he would go before the mirror, before the skit started, and he would look deeply into the mirror and say, I am going to do a terrific show today. I'm going to help a lot of people because I'm good enough. I'm smart enough. And doggone it, people like me. <laughs> It was called the Daily Affirmations, and he would overcome his insecurity by being puffed up, by being puffed up. Uh, but that doesn't solve our problem. You can give kids participation trophies, right? Everybody gets a trophy these days. You can inflate their grades. You can create safe spaces. You can tell them every day that they're better than they actually are, and all you got in the end is a snowflake, right? Just a snowflake. If you look to the praise of others, and here's the point for all of us, if you look at your earthly success, uh, your business success, to give you confidence and worthiness and acceptability, you are building your spiritual worth on a flimsy house of cards, and it will fall. It will fall. Because the accuser will come in and start accusing you. He'll come in to discredit you. He'll come in to bring up all your insecurities to bring you down again your innate insecurities back to the surface. But if you're anything like me, you're on a roller coaster. Sometimes you're up here, man, the church is going great, ASA's going great, the stewardship's going great, and you feel like you're on top of the world. My marriage is good, my kids are good, but then it doesn't take long sometimes for the roller coaster to go back down. Some days you're filled with a sense of self-worth and, and feeling good about yourself, and other days you're you're more like this guy. And if you know that guy, he is Eeyore from Winnie the Pooh. Uh, he's that lovably depressed character, right? You know? Um, he's constantly down on himself. He's in touch with all of his inadequacies. He somehow had a tragic experience where his tail got ripped off. I'm not sure how that happened. But somebody pegged it back to his hindsight side. And it's just a simple reminder of how imperfect he is. Oh, woe is me. Nobody likes me that sort of thing. So we ride this roller coaster of self-esteem. And Satan, let me tell you, Satan is happy whether you're up here or down there. Happy whether you're Jack Handy or Eeyore. Because of this, if you are puffed up with pride or down in the dumps with self-loathing, Satan is equally pleased. Why? Because neither pride nor self-loathing have anything to do with Jesus. They have to do with you. You've created a human solution as a means of dealing with an inherently spiritual disease. You've tried to get out of yourself, either through puffed up pride or self-loathing. Jesus has a third way tonight, and I want to get to that. Either way, Satan wins. The English author William Somerset Maugham uh, wrote a book towards the end of his life called The Summing Up, and it was a summation of his life. And he put it this way. He said, I know that if I sat down and wrote every action in my life and every thought that crossed my mind, 
the world would consider me a monster of depravity. If they only knew, if I stood naked before them, they would hate me. If I was naked before them, they would call me a monster of depravity. Now, where does this fear of rejection take us spiritually? Well, it's one of the greatest weapons that Satan has in your spiritual life. He will use it to attack you at your weak, weak points. He will point out your sin. He will place before your, you, your, you his, your inadequacies, your failures, and he'll attempt to drive you into spiritual despair. So the accuser is Satan. He, will co he comes beside Job, remember? He's that old foe in the Old Testament. And so Job is a wealthy man, full of blessings, and Satan has this idea that if God allows him to curse Job in some way, that he'll end up falling apart. His ego will be trashed, he'll be seen as a fraud, and then he'll curse God. And that's exactly what happens. His righteous standing, uh, Job says, is because you've blessed him. You've blessed him with a wife and children and livestock and the abundance of wealth. And Satan says to God, if I take those away, he will curse you to your face. Job chapter 2, verse 5. Take away that foundation and you'll, he'll be revealed as a fraud. Isn't that how Satan tries to get it to Jesus too? Just a few weeks ago, we had that wonderful passage about Jesus in the wilderness being tempted of Satan. And Satan comes to Jesus and says, if you are the Son of God, if you are the Son of God, if you are the Son of God. He wants to plant that seed of doubt in the very Son of God that his standing before the Father is a fraud. It's a fraudulent relationship. If you are the Son of God. The last book of the Bible, Revelation, shows the way Satan casts the net over the saints, over you and me. It says this in chapter 10. I heard a loud voice in heaven, John writes, saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. This is talking about the end times. For the accuser of our brothers, the saints, has been thrown down at the end of time. And it says this, he accuses them day and night before our God. Satan, before the throne, before the judgment seat of God, is accusing the saints, the brothers and sisters, every day and every night. This is who we meet tonight, Satan, the accuser, the prosecutor, the one who accuses the saints before the throne of God every night and every day. Friends, don't take Satan lightly. This is the one who is out to destroy your joy. He's out to destroy your confidence. He's out to destroy your worth and your dignity. He's out to make you feel as though God does not love you, that you're naked before him, that you're totally inadequate, and he's accusing you day and night. God doesn't love you. You're not worthy. You're not uh, loved in his sight. So Satan whispers every day, and he brings to our, the surface of our minds these vivid images of how unworthy we truly are. Remember King David? King David had that thing where he committed adultery with Bathsheba, one of his best friend's wives. And then he sent her husband, Uriah the Hittite, to the front of the battle to be killed, one of his best soldiers and a good friend of his. And he created these heinous sins. And in Psalm 51, he says one verse that really just pricks my heart. He says, against you only have I sinned, O God, 
and my sin is ever before me. Satan keeps raising it up in vivid ways to the, the top of my mind, and I just can't seem to let it go. My sin is ever before me. Satan keeps pushing it up from the depths of our souls. Have you ever had that happen to you? Maybe it's some sin that's long ago. You took it to the cross many years ago. You thought you had dealt with it, left it with Jesus, and Satan is accusing you day and night before the throne. of Look at what you just did. Look at what you did 10 years ago. Uh, I'm still bringing that up in your minds. You ever had that happen? I bet you have. Satan whispers in that still small voice that you're nothing but a fraud. You're a faker. You're not worthy to stand before God. You're not acceptable to God. If people only knew you for who you are, they would know that you're a monster of depravity. Now, here's some ways that Satan seeks to defeat us, okay? Some really way, uh, practical ways he seeks to discredit us before God. When you lose a job, Satan looks at you and laughs and says, what a fraud, what a failure, what a failure. When you lose a spouse to divorce, God forbid, but if that happens, you know what Satan's going to do? He's going to accuse you and say, if you were a better wife, you'd still have your husband with you. You're a failure. You're a fraud. He's accusing you. When someone dies in your family, uh, particularly if it's a suicide, if you've had that, God bless you, God heal you. My cousin Mitch died of suicide 10 years ago. And there are always those questions when there's a suicide. Uh, was I a good enough cousin? Is this somehow my fault? Did I not support him well enough? You get these thoughts in your mind and Satan raises them up. Was I a terrible friend, a terrible parent? What caused this terrible thing? Was it me? Or when you pray? Think about your prayer life, your intimacy with God. The prosecutor's voice comes into your prayer life and he says to you, you expect God to listen to a sinner like you? Really? really? You know why your prayers aren't being answered, don't you? Because you don't deserve his blessings. And I think possibly God is mad at you. Look at you. You're a sinner. You don't deserve God's blessings. Or how about this? When you first become a Christian and you've got this new, fresh relationship with Jesus Christ and you want to live for him, and, and then you commit that first big sin, and it's something you've been dealing with for a long time that's come back, and Satan points at you and laughs at you and says to you, well, you did that when you were in Adam. Now you were in Christ and you're still doing it. You did that in your old life and now you're still doing it. You're a fraud. You're a faker. Your whole conversion is a ruse. It's a fake. You're not a Christian. Look at your sin. Or how about this? Taking Holy Communion on Sunday morning, kneeling at this beautiful altar in the presence of God, and suddenly Satan begins to accuse you and raise vivid images to the top of your mind. Images of sex or violence or hurtfulness or hatefulness, and you try your best spiritually to press them down, but Satan keeps bringing them up, bringing them up, accusing the saints day and night, even in church. And he says, look at you. You're at God's holy table, and you've got these thoughts wandering through your mind? Oh, my goodness. So Satan is about building a case against you before the throne of God day and night. And an issue in this is your righteousness, is your righteousness. Now, that's just a big word to say a relational uh, connection with God that's based on a right relationship. 
is a highly relational word. It means to be acceptable to God, to have worth and dignity and value in God's sight. And that's what we're going to get to, that relational word that we call righteousness. So we're going to look at Satan in the courtroom now, all right? So that is the courtroom scene I'd like to put before you. And we're going to look at this little obscure passage from Zechariah chapter 3. I'll admit, went to seminary, you know, three years, never noticed this passage. Just a couple years ago, I looked at it and like, it's in a minor prophet right at the end of the Bible. Is it that important? Oh my goodness, is this rich? This is rich stuff. You need to know this. Amazing chapter. Because it answers how people in their insecurity and their sinfulness can stand with confidence before the throne of God in righteousness. It answers the question about how we can, with all of our self-doubt and all of our self-loathing, be assured of the righteous standing we have before the Father. So I want to look at that. You don't have to do it by getting puffed up with pride. That doesn't work. Or getting depressed and self-loathing. There is a third way, and it's God's way. So we're going to greet the accuser in the courtroom. We've got three characters we're going to look at, Joshua and Satan and the angel of the Lord. There we go, Zechariah 3.1. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse Joshua. Now, this is not the Joshua of the Exodus. He's not the one that succeeded Moses in leadership to take them back into the promised land. Not that one. Uh, be strong and courageous. The Lord your God is with you. Not that one. But this is Joshua the high priest in the temple in the time of exile when the people had sinned and be taken, been taken over to Babylon. So this is him. And he's standing in the temple, the text says. And that word standing means literally he's ministering in the temple. So we assume what he is doing is this is the Day of Atonement, and he's making atonement for the sins of the people. This is Yom Kippur, and he's ministering in the Holy of Holies, the place where he would take the blood of the Lamb of God, the Lamb that was pure, pure and perfect and pure, and he would take it behind the curtain of the Holy of Holies, and he would sprinkle it between the cherubim on the bema seat, the judgment seat of the ark, and he would plead for the forgiveness of his people's sins. That's his job that day. Satan, though, is standing right beside him, accusing our, our friend Joshua. See what he's doing? Satan's up to his old tricks, right? He's before the throne of God, accusing Joshua, just like he accuses us. He is before the throne, accusing us day and night. So there's one more character, um, and that is Joshua the high priest is standing before the angel of the Lord. Now notice that, the angel, not an angel. That was, that's where the passage gets rich, okay? So an angel is just a generic messenger of God. That's what angel means, a messenger of God, just a generic servant of God. But when it says the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament, the angel takes on some really strange properties, really strange. In fact, in verse 1, the angel of the Lord is standing before the high priest Joshua. And the very next verse, it says, The Lord spoke. The Lord said, Rebuke you, O Satan. The angel speaks in the next verse as though he were the Lord, Yahweh, God himself. What an amazing thing. So we see some stuff happening here. 
And if you want to impress people at your next big dinner party, you need to learn the word Christophany, because I believe that's what we have right here. And you just need to say, okay, I was, I was looking through Zechariah chapter 3 the other day, and I found the strangest, most wonderful Christophany. And everybody will think you're brilliant. Just throw it out there. So a Christophany is a pre-incarnate, temporary manifestation of Jesus in the Old Testament. Uh, ever wondered about those other strange texts we get? Daniel 3.25, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are being burned up in the fiery furnace, and one who appears as the Son of God is in there with him, and he saves them from the fiery furnace. wonder who that was. Maybe pre-incarnate Jesus? We've got this figure that's wrestling with Jacob at the river Jabbok all night long. Remember that one? And he's fearful that Esau is going to come with bloodlust and get his revenge because he's been connived and, and uh, deceived out of the birthright. So he's wrestling all night long in prayer, and he says to this being, he says, man, I'm not going to let you go till you bless me. And uh, the being said, okay, I'll bless you, but I'm going to put your hip out of joint first. And, and by the morning, his name is changed from Jacob, the conniver, the deceiver, to Israel, the one who wrestles with God himself. And in the morning light, he realizes he'd been wrestling with God. You see, what we're told in the Bible is that no one has ever seen the Father, right? We've only seen God in the face of Jesus. We've not seen the Spirit in physical form. So this is a Christophany. There's another one, several of them, but the last one I'll talk about is uh, Moses. Comes up to this burning bush one day, and it says, The angel of the Lord appeared to him. And in the very next verse, it says, And the Lord said to him, as though the angel of the Lord is Yahweh himself. So if we've got that, let's look at the courtroom drama. We've got Joshua the high priest, we've got the angel of the Lord, which we're going to call Jesus, and we've got Satan, one on either side, the prosecutor and the defender, the accuser uh, and the advocate. So we have that courtroom setting, it's kind of cool, and Joshua is making atonement. Atonement means to, to make at one again, to, to reconcile God and man. Uh, so we're about to create a right relationship with God. That was jo Joshua's primary uh, reason for being there. But here's the problem. Here's the problem with Joshua and the problem with all of us, I guess. He has spent probably several weeks now preparing to go into the Holy of Holies. He's been saying prayers like we were doing during Lent. He's been fasting like we're doing during Lent. He's probably cloistered himself off in a way so that he wouldn't touch anybody that's that would, would defile him. Uh, he's probably cloistered himself away so he doesn't look at a woman lustfully. In other words, he's like this athlete who's trained for several weeks for this great event, for going into God's presence. But you know what? Joshua knew that unrighteous sinners can never stand in the presence of God, right? Remember even Moses asked God, God, you know, I need to be assured that you're going to go with us into the promised land, so I want to see your face. God said, if you can't see my face and live, that's impossible. I would, my holiness would, would destroy you. It would, it would undo you. And so God says, here's what I'll do for you. I'll put you in the cleft of a rock so that you can just see a little bit of my glory as it passes by and possibly as a sinner, as a sinful human being, you won't die and that's what happened. Rock of ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. Because Moses knew that he would die if he saw God face to face. Joshua knows that 
Holiness and righteousness can't coexist. So this is a heavy moment for Joshua. And look at what happens. Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed in filthy garments. He's in God's presence in filthy garments. And it's worse than that. The Hebrew word actually means not dirty clothes, but clothes that are caked with excrement and pee. That's how unrighteous he is in God's sight. Picture a farmer who's been out slopping pigs all day long with all the poop and the pee on him, and he's got the overalls, and he doesn't wash, and he smells and reeks of the stuff, and he walks right into church and sits right beside you. That's Joshua in the presence of God that day. He might have thought he was cleaned up through all of his righteous work that he was doing those weeks prior, all those great deeds, all that, that prayer and all that fasting. But he should have known what Isaiah 64, 6 says. We've all become like one who is unclean, and all of our righteous deeds are like polluted garments. So get this. There is a person in here that can stand before the presence of God based on our own righteousness. Not a one. Not even Joshua. Not even after all that training. So what we're encountering today is a courtroom scene. We have Joshua the, standing before the judge, the judgment seat of God. We've got Satan, the prosecuting attorney, building a case against us. And we've got Jesus, our defense attorney, building a case for us. Satan, building his case against Joshua. He's like, who do you think you are? Coming in the presence of the Most High God. <laughs> You've come in here unclean, unrighteous, unworthy, unacceptable, dressed like that in those filthy clothes. It seems to be an open and shut case, doesn't it? You don't deserve to be in the presence of God. But then the defense attorney steps in, and look what he says. And the angel of the Lord Jesus said to those who were standing before him, the other angels, messengers, servants of God, those lower servants, Remove the filthy garments from Joshua. And he said to him, Behold, I have taken away your iniquity from you, and I'm going to clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they came and put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with righteous garments. Doesn't that sound a whole lot like the prodigal son in the New Testament? The unworthy sinner son who had abandoned and spent all, all of his father's money, he comes home, and instead of being accused and made to feel so more, much more unworthy, the father says, come on in, son, come on in. We're going to put the father's robe upon you. Come on in, son, we're going to put the family signet ring upon you. I'm going to clean you up. And come on in, son, my son's not going to go barefoot. Barefoot is for slaves. Put shoes on his feet. Because this son of mine who was lost is now found, and he's back with the family. The father cleaned him up to bring him back into the household. Isn't that what Jesus is doing for Joshua there? He's cleaning him up, bringing him back into the household. In verse 4, we learn that he has done two things. He has taken away Joshua's sin. Okay, he's removed the guilt, removed the sin. In Jesus, there is no more condemnation. We know that from Scripture. But then there's some highly messianic words and statements a little bit later in there. In verse 8 today, it says, I will bring my servant the branch. The branch. What do you know about the branch in the Old Testament? It says in Jeremiah 33, In those days at the right time, 
I will cause the branch of righteousness to grow up into David. That's the Messiah. That's Jesus. That he's coming to deal with sin, to deal with guilt, to deal with shame. In Isaiah 11.1 1, it says, And there shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of its roots. A branch is coming. And in verse 9 and 10 t- tonight, it says, When the branch comes on a single day in history, in that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree because he's going to remove our iniquity in a day that is to come. Doesn't that sound like Good Friday? Sounds like a Good Friday to me. And this branch prophesied throughout Scripture and the, the line and lineage of David, that sounds like Jesus to me. It seems like what he's saying is all those days of Yom Kippur, all those days of atonement, every priest that ever went in to offer the sacrifice of blood on the Bema Seat of God, they were all pointing to Jesus, to Good Friday. And it means this, that Satan is always going to be your accuser. It means that Jesus is always going to be your advocate. It means that Satan is there to prosecute you as your prosecuting attorney every day. But Jesus is there as your defense attorney every single day. The blood of Jesus speaks a better word than the words of Satan. So, Jesus says, and this is the second thing that Jesus does. Uh, Remove his filthy garments. I'm going to clothe him with pure garments and put on a clean turban. Now, this is more than just redressing him in priestly garments. He's actually redressing him in kingly garments, in the beauty and righteousness of the King of kings and the Lord of lords, a clean turban on his head, white kingly robes to wear. Here's another cocktail party thing that you can throw out to make people think that you're brilliant. Yes, I was reading through Zechariah 3 the other day, and I came across this passage that speaks right into the fact that imputed righteousness is what we must claim before the throne of God. Imputed righteousness. Remember that word. It means to accredit to somebody's account a righteousness that is not theirs by nature. It means to cover somebody in righteousness, to impart righteousness to somebody in a way that it holds up in the courtroom of God before the throne of God. Joshua is reclothed in kingly garments by the king himself, by Jesus Christ. Isaiah 53 speaks into this. But he was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. So that's what Jesus gets in salvation. He gets the chastisement that we deserve, the crushing that we deserve, the piercing for transgressions, And then we get, by his wounds, we're healed. We're made whole in the eyes and sight of God again, given worth and dignity and value in God's sight before his throne. We don't have to listen to the accuser any longer because God loves us. He died for us. And I love 2 Corinthians 5.21 just as much. For our sake, God made Jesus, who knew no sin, to become sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. It's, It's a holy thing. That is imputed righteousness. He gets our transgressions, we get his righteousness, so that we can stand with confidence before the throne of God. Here's the implication. God no longer sees Joshua in in unperfect, filthy, excrement-ridden garments. He sees the righteousness of his beloved son. And God promises to do that for you and for me. I don't know about you, but I plan to strut into heaven. Yeah, I'm going to go right up to the pearly gates, 
And I'm going to say, Jesus is going to come and take me by his hands, and he's going to say, welcome home, Trip Jeffords. Uh, we've waited for you. And he's going to take me right up to the Father, to his throne of judgment. And Jesus is going to say, and I hope my wife is there, uh, Father, I'd like for you to meet Trip Jeffords. He's home now. Trip Jeffords, the perfect one. And my wife is going to be the prosecuting attorney that day. She's going, no, 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 no. I was married to him for over 30 years. Let me tell you a thing or two. He is not the perfect one. And Jesus is going to say, well, yes, he is. I not only died for his guilt, I died for his sin. And he's no longer in condemnation, but I gave him my garments. I gave him my righteousness. He is now the perfect one. Those two things allow us to stand before the judgment throne of God with great confidence. There's this man, Stipulkowski, and I'll try and make this story short. Uh, Bishop Fitzsimmons Allison mentions him in Fear, Love, and Worship, a book he wrote years ago. Stipulkowski, this true story, was a Polish freedom fighter, one of 16 taken prisoner by the Russians in 1940. He was brought before the law court in Russia, and he had a prosecuting attorney. And the prosecutor wanted to interrogate him to get him to confess to crimes he didn't commit. They put such pressure on Stipulkowski to break him spiritually and to destroy his integrity. They exposed his weaknesses, his inadequacy, his guilt from sins in the past. Seventy nights, 141 interrogations, he stood firm. He ate almost nothing, slept almost uh, never, and yet he stood firm in total exhaustion. Stipulkowski refused to confess to something that he never did himself. The incessant interrogations, guess what happened? He broke the interrogator. He broke his interrogator. Psychologically, the man broke down and had to get another interrogator. Goodness sakes. Because he was a Christian. And he understood forgiveness of sin. And he understood that his accusers couldn't indict him, couldn't make him feel unworthy, because Christ has already made him worthy in the imputed righteousness he already knew his inadequacies and his sin. And somebody asked him years later, why didn't you break? And he said this, and I quote, I've never felt it necessary to justify myself with excuses. When they showed me that I was a coward, <laughs> I already knew that. When they, showed, when they shook their finger at me with accusations that I had filthy thoughts and lewd feelings, he said, I already knew that too. He said, when they showed me a reflection of myself, with all of my inadequacies, I could tell them. But gentlemen, I am much worse than that. You see, I've been taught these things since I was a little child. And I've also been taught that it is unnecessary to justify myself. For one has already done that for me. It's Jesus Christ who's acquitted me of my sins in his blood. So, do you have that kind of confidence that Stipulkowski showed? Do you have the kind of confidence that that you, even in your imperfection, Jesus has got it handled. He's forgiven your sin. He's taken away your guilt. And he's bestowed upon you imputed righteousness that is his alone. So, it's got four minutes. Okay, defeat the accuser. We'll just give you a few pointers. First of all, go to the Word. Go to the Word. Jesus went to the Word. When he's trying to repel the works of Satan, he goes to the Word time and time and time again. Go to the Word like Romans 8. Therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Just go over it, man. There's, that is the, the power of the Spirit. It's the sword of the Spirit. It is the Word of God. Repent. Repent from listening to Satan. There was a, a guy named Thomas Brooks who was uh, um, 
a non-conformist Puritan preacher in England. And he said this, when you are discouraged and feel inadequate, when you feel terrible about the way you stand before God, when Satan has lied and accused you uh, and you've believed him, you've sinned and you've listened to a lie. Rather than the truth of God's word, repent. Remind yourself of who you are and whose you are. Banish Satan from your prayers in the name of Jesus. Remind Satan that the victory's already been won in the blood of Jesus. Open and shut case. Claim your covering. Renounce your accuser by holding fast to the advocate. Number three, preach the gospel to yourself every single day. Number four, pray. Call on Jesus. He is your mediator and your advocate in prayer. He has already become your defending attorney. His defense case is open and shut. The prosecution cannot make a case against you. Claim the name of Jesus in your prayer life. And here are some practical things that will begin to happen, okay? First of all, you'll stop being a people-pleasing person. you stop being just so caught up in getting the praise of others that you can't live your own life. You'll be able to voice your opinion, to be assertive and yet not pushy. You will no longer be a slave to perfection. Um, I appreciate that about Frank Limehouse from St. Helena's. And uh, Frank was a guy who would um, create all kinds of gaffes, almost every worship service, and yet it never, never bothered him. I would get so embarrassed, my face turns red. Why? Because I'm an insecure person. Uh, Frank would never do that because he got the gospel better than I did. And one day, I was there for my first Sunday, and there's this this great ancient ECW chapter called the Maynard Marshall chapter. And he was doing announcements, and Frank said, tonight at 7 p.m. in the library, they'll meet the Maynard Marshall, no, he said the Marshall Tucker uh, ECW chapter. I said, Frank, it's Maynard Marshall. Marshall Tucker's a southern rock band. <laughs> and he, he went unfazed. He slapped himself in the face and said, oh, I forgot, it's Maynard Marshall. He had such a security he didn't have to be a perfectionist. Jesus Christ was his perfection. You begin to not fear failure as much when you trust in Christ. Uh, you, you begin to, to, to not feel inferior anymore, not feel unworthy anymore, because he is your righteousness. So I'll just um, ask you to join with me in this. I wish I could uh, sing like Rob Sturdy, but we'll end with one of my favorite hymns, and we'll just say it together, okay? Let's start. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. When darkness veils his lovely face, I rest on his unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. His oath, his covenant, his blood support me in the whelming flood. When all around my soul gives way, he then is all my hope and stay. Listen to this last verse. When he shall come with trumpet sound, oh, may I then in him be found, dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. Amen and amen. Amen.